0: One, two, three, go. Feminist Mormon Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year Polygamy series where we seek to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And I'm really excited to bring on someone who is going to help us understand and untangle the federal legislation surrounding polygamy. This is a really important topic and something that everyone needs to understand when they're trying to understand Mormon polygamy. So I would like to introduce our panelist today. His name is Perry Porter. Perry, can you say hello?
1: Sure, I can. Hi.
0: Can you tell us about yourself?
1: Okay. Uh Father of five children. I live in Orem. Uh, I've been divorced for about uh, 15 years. I got interested in feminism via the internet many, many years ago in discussion groups and chat groups. And I consider myself uh, a lapsed feminist investigator where I studied about feminism, but I don't really wear the label very well because uh, I don't I haven't studied enough. I'm kind of inactive as far as feminism is concerned.
0: That's okay, I know,
1: I know it's kind of an odd way to describe that but that's no
0: that's um a very mormon way to describe that. Tell us how you got interested in this topic
1: um it uh, is actually has to do with my brother uh i when I was on my mission I went to uh italy Rome in uh, nineteen seventy five and uh after being an i we had a kind of a family history where um my oldest brother was a very devout uh, missionary, and he was in the Central States Mission, and he baptized forty people in uh, Missouri and in Kansas. And at the time, that was just a huge number. Uh, this was in the nineteen fifty-three, fifty-four. Uh, very uh, back then, the the Eastern States Mission was huge, and so um, my family had this tradition. He went on a mission. My my next brother went on a mission. My sister, just older than me, went to the same mission I did in Rome, and my brother, just older than me, also went he was an assistant mission president so I had this family tradition of missions being very important so I've been on my mission for a, a few months and um maybe a little longer than that and i wasn't i'd gone out with a, a lot of zeal to want to uh, stand up on the street corner and and like Wilfred woodruff or others and Preach people the gospel and get them to join, and, and I, I had a lot of enthusiasm for that, but it wasn't. People in Italy were Catholic. They were extremely Catholic, and they weren't really looking to join the church in big numbers. And it was all about memorizing a set script and repeating it to other people. So I got really discouraged at some point in time, and then I thought, well, if I'm not going to convert uh, people like my uh, siblings, and and then then maybe what I could do is reach back to my own family. And uh, I had a brother that that was inactive and a sister that was inactive. I thought, well, I'll write to them and see if I can get them to uh, get back involved in the church, and that will uh, feel like I'm being productive while I'm on my mission. Well, um, the reason my brother was not, in, not active is because he'd been excommunicated. He was a member of the Tabernacle Choir. He started studying about fundamentalism and started uh, teaching and preaching to other members in the Tabernacle Choir, about uh, polygamy and how we should be continuing to live it today and as a very naive 19 year old boy i uh imagined that i was going to write to my uh fundamentalist brother and get him back into the church and that uh, he just uh, had misunderstood and misheard these statements from the pulpit of the tabernacle and uh that i was gonna that I was gonna fix everything and my <laughs> sister who was uh um, yeah, this is how naive I was. Uh, my sister, who's gay, uh, I was gonna write to my gay sister and write to her and convince her, uh, to become active and go back to church. She was a chain smoking, uh, lesbian alcoholic. Uh, and I was going to turn around and write to her as a 19 year old missionary and get her to go back to church.
0: You were gonna and save the world.
1: I, well, I thought I could at least save some of my family. But, um, it's actually, it's embarrassing at this point to to think that I wrote to my sister. And I have no idea what I wrote to her. It's been too many years. And she never wrote back. But my brother did write back. So he sent back this letter, seven-page letter or longer, uh, both sides filled out. And he had uh, quotes from the Journal of Discourses and quotes from Salt Lake Tribune. Well, not the Tribune, but the Deseret News and from uh, other sources from conference talks, and it was all talking about how the importance of polygamy, blah, blah, blah. And so I read through this letter, and I was just kind of taken back because I'm thinking like, wow, uh, I never heard any of this stuff before. But I'm sure it's just misquotes. I mean, they're just someone writing it down uh, in, in the tabernacle. They just wrote it wrong, and they didn't really say that. So I wrote back to him and gave him that explanation, and he wrote back another letter. So over the rest of the year and a half of my mission we exchanged seven different letters and by the time I was through with my mission I was on a quest to find out if my brother was right is polygamy a true doctrine in the church and we should still be continuing to live it or is it not true and uh, or or should we the reasons why we've given up polygamy are they uh, are they the right reasons so this is a pretty big quest which the chronology of the federal legislation on polygamy goes through in a more historical manner piece by piece uh this quest for information to find out whether um my uh, brother was right so when i got back from i got back to BYU i took every single religion class i could possibly take uh i in the church history department the uh Scripture department was boring. I I, I hated those classes. I only took the two Book of Mormon classes and that was it. But I also took additional 399 R classes and I I, uh, had four more extra hours than you'd normally need to graduate from BYU because I was taking every class I could. I took classes on Utah history from, uh, named Eugene Campbell. And then when I was through with school, I was getting towards the end of school and I was going to, I was studying to be a school teacher and I'd taken enough uh, history classes and to minor in history in fact that's uh, that's how I decided how to, what my minor would be when I would do school teaching is that I looked at the class that I'd already taken which was the fastest one to take and it was history so I got towards the end of that and I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school and uh, when I, I'd taken a class from Mike Quinn, you know who that is so that's right?
0: Yeah I might have heard of him.
1: <laughs> you might have heard of Mike Quinn and um uh, so when I get into, I applied for graduate school at BYU in history, and they assigned to me of all the different people, seventeen different professors or more in the history department. Mike Quinn ends up being my graduate school advisor, and uh, and I had a class from him, and I I liked Mike, and he knew that I was interested in polygamy, and Mike had done some significant research on polygamy, but um, to his credit, you know, he was he was a faithful Mormon. He he didn't tell me very much about he would talk about historical um events but he wouldn't turn around and say you know whether polygamy was right whether it was wrong he just kind of played the middle ground so while i was going to graduate school i was in graduate school some significant which i would think at the time heavy hitters ken cannon who wrote uh an article uh in i guess it was the uh BYU studies. I, I I have links to which these different articles are that I can turn around and share on that group. Uh, but he he wrote about the uh, cohabitation of uh, apostles and how many kids they had after the first manifesto and um and before the second manifesto. And Mike had talked about all of the marriages after the um in like 1981 or 82. All of the marriages that happened after the first manifesto. In my same class was Andy Ehat, who was in the paper that I was in a class with James Allen, and Andy Ehat was there, and so was Ken Cannon. And Andy's paper was on the quorum of the uh, the anointed quorum uh, in uh, Nauvoo. And uh, I had classes with Gary Bujera. In fact, one of the classes I took in graduate school was uh, on Mormon history, it was a graduate level class. And it was taught by Leonard J. Arrington. Leonard J. Arrington had just left from being the church historian. Uh, and he had, he was, he taught at BYU for like two, three years. And the very first class that he taught was, uh, a Mormon history class on the graduate level. And it was the, he had this manuscript of the book that he was coming, coming out with, The Mormon Experience. And every day, uh, for an hour and a half, he would read one chapter. We'd have like a 15 minute break and then he would read the next chapter. And we just basically went through the the first draft of his book uh for the class. So and and Errington was a a great guy. He was, was a really, really nice person and, and I'm friends with his son James and and uh other people that were in, in uh graduate school with me at the same time was Susan Easton Black, who you may have heard of. And uh you have, is that right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. She spoke at Ed or uh um, yeah, education week this year.
1: Yep. And uh Lyndon Cook. Uh, was also in classes with me. So I, I was surrounded by all these people. And it was this kind of a, we it was in the golden years, they called it the BYU, when, um, Dallin Oaks was the president of the church, of the, uh, BYU. And there was a lot more intellectual freedom in the, uh, church archives. There was a moral intellectual freedom in, on campus to think and do different things. Um, and so I, I was just emerged in doing this study all about uh, Mormon polygamy, and uh, so some of the other things that I did that were outside of just going to BYU is that um, I knew Ernest Streck, who ran Garfield's bookstore, and I would go get a photocopy. There, there'd be people would leak things from the archives, uh, special collections, or the the uh, Church History Department, and they would. Make photocopies, and Ernest was a fundamentalist. He, was a, he looked kind of like Jesus. He was kind of this hippie guy, and he had like three, three different wives. And, and if you were around BYU and knew BYU history uh, in the 1980s, uh, then you knew who Ernest Streck was because he was a source of, of information that you would get information and things that you wouldn't normally get. Also, uh, at the time during this period while I studied, and it was like 15 years or so that I studied, whenever there was an opportunity to read more about polygamy. I, I took it up. I also went down to Manti, which I think you're familiar with Jim Harmston uh, and the polygamous group down there, the True and Living Church. Yes. Aren't you from, yeah, I've been to Jim Harmston's house twice. Uh, his son-in-law uh, used to play basketball with me lived in my stake. He was a member of their uh, uh, Quorum of the Twelve. And I interviewed one of the apostles of the True and Living Church uh, for a project that was being done Uh, a history project for a friend of mine, and she couldn't go down that weekend. So I went down and had a list of questions and interviewed him. I interviewed him on on a cassette tape, asked him the questions and followed up. Uh, My brother, who was a a dry fundamentalist, he was uh, married to this one woman who was not interested in joining polygamy at any point in time. And so he never had any more wives, but he was really good friends with Fred Collier and ran into Fred. I ran into Fred multiple, multiple times. Uh, and you're familiar with Fred, is that right? He Absolutely,
0: did the yes.
1: Unpublished revelations of Joseph Smith. And my brother was also really good friends with Tom Green. And so when I would run into Tom Green, and slowly and surely, I mean, Fred remembered me introduced him. I saw him at Sunstone like three, or four years ago, and he remembered me being a, my brother is meeting with his brother with my brother years ago. And Tom, uh, I saw him at Sunstone a few years back when he got out of prison, and he. I I didn't recognize him immediately, and he recognized me, and he came up and gave me a big hug and everything. And so I've kind of followed these different groups. One of the very first books that I read was Van Wagner's uh, book on Mormon polygamy, and he lives out in Lehigh. And as soon as I was through reading the book, I went out to Lehigh, and I went out to his house, and I talked to him in order to get a better feel. It's one thing when you read history, and you read the facts, and then you read what someone writes, and then to get the nuances about how convinced they are about their evidence leading towards a certain point of view, you, when you sit down and, and talk to them, uh, you get a better feel, you know, you have these preconceived notions about that, that especially when it comes to polygamy, because people think that think if you're studying polygamy, that you want to live polygamy and that you're out to be a polygamist. And it's just a, it's a history hobby and it's a very fascinating topic. And, and, uh, Richard was a—he's uh, he, passed away now—but a very, very nice guy, and he was so gracious to be to take some time for two hours on two different occasions to sit down and talk to me all about polygamy that he could. Uh, I'd read *Solomon: uh Solemn Covenant* uh, by Carmen Hardy, and uh, I met him a few times at Sunstone and talked to him, and, and uh, I was friends with his daughter, who she is just a super smart gal. I've been around all these kind of polygamy kind of things for a long time and uh, that's why I I went on this quest to find out whether it's true or not and I think going through the chronology uh, can help other people turn around and get to know this uh, as well.
0: I think that's, uh, so I was preparing for this episode and I, I mean probably two months ago I planned on taping this but as I was getting into it I realized how involved it is and there's so much legislation that doesn't even deal directly with polygamy but surrounding polygamy so it's a big topic so um and then i found your timeline and that's why i decided to ask you because your timeline has all of the key points that i was researching and i think that all of these things need to be talked about so let's get into it can we start with um the very beginning you on your timeline, which I'm going to link link to, I would encourage everyone as you're listening to go to the feminist Mormon Housewives podcast site and look at this timeline so you can follow on with us. I'm going to link the timeline on the site so Perry, can you start us off in eighteen thirty five
1: well the the uh, article on marriage there was a, a situation where the church was being uh, there's rumors going around about polygamy and so they had an article on marriages that basically said what the doctrine of the church was as far as uh, marriage was concerned at that point in time, but it was the uh, public-facing doctrine, not the private polygamy doctrine that was being taught by Joseph Smith and lived by other people at that point in time. And it stayed, ironically, in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876, uh, which was right around the, the death of Brigham Young, before they turned around and took that article out, uh, and then put in the, what we know as Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And uh, it was just kind of an anomaly where they it was another example of where publicly they say one thing and privately they do another. So, one of the, the next thing that happened chronologically after that was the uh, petition. The, Utah wanted to become a uh, state and they proposed the state of Deseret, which territories were huge and uh, unwieldy, and the the government trimmed it back and said, you know, you can't really have that much territory in just one state, because it would be been as big as three or four states, as far as that is concerned. So they became a territory in 1850, so that's just three years after they moved into the valley, so it was very early on, and at that point in time, uh, polygamy had not, it was still on the down low, they weren't uh, talking about it. Uh, anywhere publicly, but in 1852, they start talking about it in general conference, and Orson Pratt is gives the first public discourse on polygamy. And Orson Pratt was, I think, was a very, very uh, great orator. I, I think it would have been great to be to have recording equipment and listen to him speak, because when you read. What he says it comes across really, really strongly. And at the same time in 1853, Orson Pratt went and published The Seer uh, which was a set of uh, newspaper articles uh, being pro-polygamy articles that they were writing uh, and they were trying to convince people uh, across the nation that polygamy was a good thing and it was okay. And then it was bound into a book and later published in uh, England. But about around that same time in 18. 18- Fifty six, the Republican Party, a brand-new political party, the Republican Party came out, and they had as their platform uh, two platform items. The two major platform items were to abolish the twin relics of barbarism, which were slavery and polygamy. And uh, so they were out to turn around and stop. Um, they were anti-slavery, and they were also anti-polygamy. And that was the, the main Republican platform at that point in time.
0: And, of course, there's all these back chats going on in the federal government, you know, with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Everyone is trying to add in, just like politics today, you know, add in certain things to get certain things passed. And so polygamy really becomes this leverage for certain political parties to pass their agendas, correct?
1: It, the, the Republican party had to have something different to say than what the other parties were. Otherwise, what's the point of the different party? And so they were anti-slavery. And then they figured everyone can get on the bandwagon and be anti-polygamy. So that was a, like a no-brainer. And since Utah was a territory, and that's the difference between a state and a territory is very much is that, that the governor and all of the high-level positions in the state are controlled by Congress and Congress, congressmen, they get to pick who the territorial government governor is going to be and who these federal appointees are. And so they can come out to Utah and they're paid uh, really good salaries and they have these cushy jobs. So a, a federal appointee is a, a really good job to have. And so uh, having U- Utah as a territory, that's how they could turn around and make these laws, which normally a marriage law, uh, every marriage, every state can have their own different marriage laws, as you see right now today, very, very common. Some uh, states allow to have a same-sex marriage, and other ones don't. And then they can flip-flop back and forth on it, and it's a, it's a state issue because the marriage contract is, is not a federal contract or a federal law. It's a state law, and so Utah wanted to become a state as soon as they possibly could so that they could make their own laws, and they wouldn't have some uh, appointed officials coming in after that, And that's when then the Republican Party and well, they came with their second time in 1856. They came their second time where they wanted to turn around and they proposed to become a state. And that was uh, also uh, rejected. And this is the time when things happen with James Buchanan and he sends out an escort, a military escort uh, to re- replace Brigham Young as governor. And we get into the whole problem with Buchanan's blunder as it's referred to. And uh, you've covered that in some of your other podcasts. By the way, I've listened to all of your podcasts until like, – I was all caught up until the very last two you. You threw two in this very last week, and I didn't get the chance to uh, hear those yet. But you've done an excellent, excellent job. Oh, and, thank and you. And I've, I've really, really enjoyed that. I mean, you know, it, you're just singing right down my alley as far as my uh, hobby horse of things to be interested in.
0: Yeah, it's such a it's such a fascinating topic for so many reasons and you know i'm speaking of this utah's plight for statehood it's that's a really complicated subject and one that could take you days and days to study so i will i will, what, what I will link don't some essays is that
1: how many times they tried to and other places that were territories were becoming states rather easily and, and part of the the reason they have to have a, a not large enough population and then they have to have a, a a write a constitution for what the state's going to have and have that approved And the federal government, since they had this polygamy going on, and they had two different things. They had the state of Deseret that was a theocracy. It was a hidden government, shadow government theocracy that was going on. And and people who came in for mining or for the, uh, when the the army came in, they could see this was going on that the the government in Utah was being run like a theocracy. And, And a theocracy is, is a really bad thing to have in the United States of America because we believe in separation of church and state. And if it weren't for that, we would be living in England where the king and the religion of that same country are all the same power. They have the same power base. And in Italy, they have, uh, for many years, the pope and the, the church and then the government were all intermeshed. Well, the same thing was going on in Utah. And uh, the non-Mormons... Didn't want wanted to break up the theocracy, and that became a problem because uh, the the church was pretending like they weren't a theocracy when when they really were. The shadow government of Deseret was going on.
0: Oh, absolutely! And you know, Brigham Young's letters have just been released, and uh, like we've talked about in the podcast before, there is so much that people. I mean, Brigham Young controlled everything in the territory: who lived with who, and who lived where, and who got what. Property, so it was absolutely being controlled by the church. And you know, it's interesting because Brigham has this weird struggle of really resenting the U.S. government, but also being a realist and realizing what is coming. And you know, if you read about any other frontier, big frontier towns like you know, Denver or Deadwood or any of the stuff going on in Wyoming or Montana, all these mining towns. They are going to be going through similar struggles because they're in this open, sort of lawless territory, and they have to figure out how to, how to get along with the U.S. government and establish themselves under the U.S. government. It's a big frontier struggle.
1: Uh, so in 1862, there was another bid for, for Utah to become a state, and it was rejected. Because of this uh, state of Deseret phantom government going on in the in the background, and they they didn't like that the Council of Fifty was uh, operating as a phantom government. Where, uh, and I think you discussed this one of the other podcasts, whether they met in the morning and they made all the decisions of what they were going to do, and then they met as a as the Council of Fifty, and then in the afternoon. They would meet again as the state legislature and then the non-members that happened to belong to, well, not the state, but the territorial legislature when they had to meet there. They proposed these things. Everybody would raise their hand in agreement. There'd be very little argument over it. And it just went, and, and the, the non-members were going like, wow, how, how can they be so together on all this? They didn't realize that they were meeting, making all the decisions, what they were going to do first and then turning around and implementing it in the afternoon so that, so that they, they wouldn't argue among each other. If there's any disagreements, they, worked it out in the morning, and in the afternoon when they'd have their other meeting, it would be really easy just to ramrod everything through. So in 1862, the first fairly significant anti-polygamy law came out, the moral anti-bigamy law. Uh, And it's interesting that uh, it was the moral, uh, and that was just the name of the guy, uh, but it's it's funny that it sounds like it's uh, the moral anti-bigamy law that was uh, written, and it was signed by Abraham Lincoln and there's uh, some other details about that that you can uh, look look at on the chronology and and I can't go through every single item because it's fairly long. Well,
0: let's go over some of them. Tell us what this because yep. this is an important law. So tell us what it did. It, it gave basic federal legislation by the Congress of the United States to punish and prevent the practice of polygamy in the ter- right. territory. So the big it gave thing was change.
1: that a, there's a $500 fine or imprisonment for they could turn around and fine people for uh, living bigamy. A- and the problem with that is that as far as bigamy is concerned, is is a there's there's a little, a little bit of confusion because traditionally bigamy is the law, which I think you know we've gone over this before that. Polygamy is more than one wife or more than one husband. Polyandry is more than one husband. Polygyny is more than one wife. And bigamy is a slightly different animal, and, and people will use these terms interchangeably. But bigamy is basically having one wife and in one city, and then you have another wife in the other city, and both of them think that you're that they're the only wife, and they don't know each other, and and They don't know about each other, and someone might have a third wife somewhere else. So the bigamy was basically marriages without consent of the other marriage partner, and they they did it behind the person's back. And it was more
0: common in frontier times than you'd think it was because it was a lot easier to travel and never see someone again.
1: Right, and and, uh, it's also common even today. People uh, are traveling salesmen, have a wife in one town, Have another wife in another town and a family and another wife and, and, uh, or or whatever in another town. And they don't, and if you, or if you're a traveling salesman and you maneuver it right, these people don't know about each other. But sooner or later, uh, something creeps up and then there's a law against that. So you just couldn't do that. And the, the bigamy, the hard part about enforcing the moral act was that, um, you had to kind of catch them. Well, for one thing, the, the wives were consensual. I mean, the usually it's one of the wives turns around and brings to the court saying like, hey, you, it takes them to the court and said, hey, you're um, married to somebody else. You didn't even tell me about this. But as far as polygamy is concerned, you know, the, the other wives know about each other. So it's not a big deal. So they're not going to turn around and take this person to court. They're not going to take their husband to court over bigamy. Um, and the government has to turn around and catch them in the act of getting married. And that's the problem. And, and the marriage ceremonies last, you know, 15, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, however long. And so who's, unless someone's willing to testify that they were there and saw somebody get married and the, the only ones that are in the temple or wherever they're having this, this uh, well-endowed house or, or where uh, on Ensign Peak, wherever they happen to be doing this temple ceremony for the sealing, uh, the marriage, the, the plural marriage sealing, um, for those people... Uh, that are there are not going to rat out their brother, their cousin, their state president, whatever. So it was hard to turn around and prosecute that law. So the 1862 law, the Morrill Act, uh, was problematic because it didn't have the right kind of teeth to turn around and enforce it.
0: Yeah, they didn't have any officers that were appointed, and they basically allocated zero funding, right? Right.
1: And without the proper funding, and and, you know, like any kind of law, if you don't have the funding and you don't have the officers in which to turn around. And, and if you have no cops, and you have no money to pay the cops, you don't bust a lot of people for a lot of stuff. You just have this law in the books that just sits there.
0: Now tell us about, you've got this great quote from TBH Stenhouse, who we talked about in the last episode and we're going to talk about in the future. He would break off and form the Godbyites. But he you have this great quote. Do you want to go tell ahead, us you, about you that? Go ahead. Okay, so you, you say... um At the time, he was a Mormon in good standing, and he asked the president what course he intended to pursue. With So he's asking Lincoln, what are you going to do with the Mormons? And Lincoln supposedly said back, quote, Stenhouse, when I was a boy on the farm in Illinois, there was a great deal of timber on the farms which we had to clear away. Occasionally, we would come to a log which had fallen down. It was too hard to split too wet to burn and too heavy to move, so we plowed around it. That's what I intend to do with the Mormons. You go back and tell Brigham Young that if he will let me alone, I will let him alone, end quote.
1: Yes, and that comes from a really, really great book and where I got uh, a lot of this information. It was one of the, maybe the third book that I'd read that were not that was not a church book. Uh, I was very, very dedicated at the very beginning of my research on polygamy to not be swayed by anti-Mormon sources or fundamentalist sources or whatever, so I tried as hard as I could to get objective sources to turn around and weed through this thing to figure out how it is. The Americanization of Utah for statehood by Gustavo Larson, he was a history professor at the University of Utah. Which of all the people that I've met, I that that and the history people are just great. I mean, I have some great friends, Will Bagley and others that are just. It's, every time I see them, I, it's just I just light up being able to see them. I never met him, and and he was this was the first serious history book that I read cover to cover on Mormon history, and it it really dealt with these issues all the way around. And I never met him. And I, I have no idea what he was like. Uh, I just know that he wrote a very groundbreaking book that most people don't know very much about, uh, The Americanization of Utah for Statehood. In fact, I, I was uh, a little side story here. I was, a, I was a bad person at the time. I uh, I, 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 committed an a awful, awful sin. When I was reading the book, I had a um, marker... And I was so intent on, it wasn't, it was like the red pencil that you'd use to underline the scripture, I had a red one and a blue one. And I would go through the book and every time I would read something that it would seem like it was very, very, it was on the side of the church, it was very pro Church, it was was something that someone could believe in that was very, very true believing Mormon, I would underline it in blue. And then when there's something that was very controversial and it sounded a a little bit fundamentalist or something that... And at the time, I grew up with a very, very um, conservative uh, background. My uh, parents were, um, uh, what were those people that, uh, sorry, I'm losing the word, John Birch Society. They Uh were John Birchers. They were extremely conservative, and uh, as was my fundamentalist brother. So when I would read something that was more fundamentalist, I would mark it in red and by the time, and I was just so engrossed in reading it that I'd marked up the book really, really bad. It was the library book. It was from Provo Library, <laughs> and I marked all these passages in the book, And uh, but no one would ever read the book. So I, I put it back on the shelf. Every once in a while, I get the book back out, and then years later, I felt really guilty that I was writing and underlining inside the book. And I was curious about, you know, well, my views had changed a lot, and I would Realized that, that, uh, liberals were not the bad guys and that, uh, conservatives weren't not the, the, you know, white hats in all cases. I went back to the library, I got a copy, I went back to the library, explained that I was the one that, uh, had written in the book, and it was, the book was in special collections at the time because it was, it's not, uh, in common. And I got them to switch it. And so I now have the copy that I used, to, the library's copy of the book that I used to write in all the time. And then the library has a nice, clean, fresh copy that someone hasn't Defiled it by underlining it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great story. Um, well, let's let's keep going. Tell us tell us what happens after the anti bigamy law. Why is that not enough?
1: Well, uh, well, because they can't enforce it, and then they come out with the Wade bill, and some some of these bills, there uh, they don't really have a lot of impact, but. It goes 1862 to 1866, just a, four more years later, and they have another bill that runs through Congress. Uh, but one of the biggest changes that happens after 1866 and changes the whole complexion of the Utah uh, Territory is uh, the Union Pacific Railroad and the, um, the Transcontinental Railroad being completed in 1869. No longer were the Mormons isolated. Uh, it had a big benefit that people that were moving to Utah from England or wherever could travel by train the whole way through and they didn't have to go on and uh, pull carts or anything. But also brought in a lot of non Mormons and they and, and didn't want to have to necessarily stay there, but they could, on their way to California, they could stop for two or three days. And so people were making observations about Utah and Utah politics and Utah. A lot more than when they were so isolated that it was very difficult to get back and forth um so in eight, uh, and then the same year there was a uh, Cragen bill was also um came out that uh, that the uh that the territory officials uh could could be uh that they could turn around and pick all of the local officials so the the territorial governor uh, which at the time was no longer Brigham Young. It was no longer a church one, but it was one that was from back east. Got to pick a lot of these individual uh, people along the way. And another bill uh, is the Cullum Bill. And uh, Robert N. Baskin uh, was uh, often, um, he was a, a non-Mormon uh, Warrior, I believe he was, that lived in Utah, and he, he was always involved in the Utah politics, and you'd hear about him and read about him in the Tribune and in the Deseret News from, from time to time. Uh, and now the, the next thing that happens of significance, and this was a thing that is of interest to uh, Mormon feminist uh, housewives, is that in 1870, women received the right to vote. And uh, in your one of your podcasts, I think you uh, mistakenly said that um, Utah that Utah was the very first state to give women the right to vote, which you are sort of right and sort of wrong.
0: Yeah, there's a little bit more to the story than that.
1: Well, uh, what it is is in Utah. They, I mean, I'm, I grew up in uh, six miles out of uh, Fort Bridger, and in Wyoming, and so. On the flag, they they commemorate uh, w- the women's right to vote on the, the Wyoming seal. It's not on the flag. It's, uh, a, sorry, that's a uh, buffalo on the flag. But on the seal, they have, on the Wyoming state seal, they have a woman. And U- Wyoming was the first state in the United States to, uh, well, I guess there's a territory technically, to give the the women the right to vote. But Utah had an election that came up before uh, Wyoming did. So Utah women were the first ones to vote in the nation. So, did you have something different to add to that? that's no. the story that I always tell.
0: Yeah. Well, um,
1: right or wrong, that's what that, I always tell.
0: That I'm hoping to devote an entire podcast on because it's, I mean, it's a really complicated story. It's basically the gist is. They think if they give women the right to vote, they're going to vote against polygamy. And, of course, this is why we have all the suffragettes in Utah. You know, Emmeline Wells was one of the most famous ones. And they are there advocating they're going to Washington. They're doing all of these really cool activist sort of things that are sanctioned by the church. And they're given the right to vote. They don't vote the way the government wants. The vote is then taken away, and then it is given back later on. And so it's really complicated, but... Yeah, I, what I want to point out with all of this is that there are all these laws that have to do with polygamy. But I think as your timeline points out when you're talking about the 1869 bills and things like that is this isn't really just about polygamy. Polygamy becomes leverage for different political agendas. I know I said that it's,
1: before. It's but to wrestle away the the Mormon theocracy control over the state.
0: I think that's part of it. And I also think that it ties into this bigger land grab that's happening in the country. Um, you know, the government trying to get control of these territories. You know, of course, the civil wars is um, just ending now at this point in our timeline. But all of these different political agendas are intersecting and intertwining in all of this stuff. And, of course, polygamy becomes the really easy battering ram to gain political leverage, and of course, these families that we've been talking about are caught in the middle of all of this.
1: Exactly, uh, the, in 1870, the Godbeites is the uh, the movement uh, started out by Amasa Lyman, who you call Amasa, and uh, it's it's always been uh, interesting. He, he uh, I, I went to I lived in grade school in Wyoming, and then I moved to Delta. Utah when I uh, went to high school and Fillmore was our rival city and it was Amasa Lyman had uh, settled the town of Fillmore and it was the uh, state uh, I keep saying state territorial uh, capital for a short period of time because they thought it was in the middle of the state everyone could drive toward the middle and they could turn around and live there well uh, I, one of the, the a lot of the Lyman's live still uh, the descendants of Amasa Lyman live in, in uh, some of them live in Delta and other ones live in Fillmore. And one of his relatives, Leo Lyman, who's a really good historian, uh, which I do quote a little bit from his book uh, in the timeline. I asked him one day, is is it Amasa Lyman or Amasa Lyman? And actually, I asked this exact same thing of uh, uh, once of uh, the church historian, Arrington. And because Arrington always called him Amasa. And I go, I hear everybody else in the, in the history department and in the church history department, be way you call him Amasa Lyman. Why do you call him Amasa? But Leonard had an interesting kind of twang to uh, an accent uh, and he would say different things, slightly different. He was kind of a, he was a very intelligent guy, but he had kind of a background from being from a smaller town. And, and uh, so Leo Lyman, I asked him, is it, is it Amasa or Amasa being a the descendant? They would hear that pronounced all the time and he was kinda of split on it. He he thought it was a massa, but what he said didn't really uh didn't convince me. Um but so the Godbeite movement was kind of the first foray uh, where a break off where there is these intellectual group of people that were they were into spiritualism and Well they were and let's doing- back
0: up for just one second. I want to say one thing about him. Um Amasa or Amasa, however you want to pronounce Amasa it. Or Amasa or Amasa. Yeah. He um he was one of the three apostles that stepped up after Joseph's death and said, "Hey, you can, you know, we'll marry the widows of Joseph Smith." And of course, I believe only one woman chose to marry him.
1: Yeah, uh, he was. A, you see his name. Uh, he's he's uh, down in uh, San Bernardino when they have one of the uh, satellite uh, colonies in in San Bernardino, uh, California. And he's he's actually living there with my great 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 grandfather. Uh, who's um, James Henry Rollins, who's the brother of uh, Mary Elizabeth Rollins, uh, Leitner. Oh, oh, this is a little sidelight yet again, sorry. Uh, go, if you just go through these things, I, I don't know whether people are interested in hearing dates over and over again. But to show how much interest I have had over the years in church history, my second oldest son uh, is named Stephen Markham. Uh, does the name Stephen Markham ring a bell? Uh, he's, the, he's the bodyguard of Joseph Smith that smuggled the gun into the characters. Oh, uh, okay. So that was Stephen Markham. Uh, my next son, I wanted to name him uh, because of our last name, and I was interested in church history figures, but they're kind of quirky ones. They're not the they're not Nephi or uh, whoever. Um, I wanted to name him Oren Rockwell Porter instead of Oren Porter Rockwell because the last name is Porter. And my wife at the time did not want to have Oren. He didn't like the name Oren, whatever. And so after he's born, uh, we're arguing back and forth. Five months go along, we still haven't filled out the birth certificate because I want to name him Oren Rockwell Porter, and she'll have nothing to do with that. And so um we compromise on naming him after his grandfather, and his full name is James Oren Rockwell Porter. So he has a really long name. Then, uh, come to the next, uh, daughter is not really named after any church history person. But my last one, Mary Elizabeth, is named after Mary Elizabeth Rollins, Leitner, Smith, Young. So, I, I'm a big history buff. You can tell if you're going to name your kids after, uh, church history, uh, and they're all, they'll have quirky history. And Mary Elizabeth Rollins, uh, was married to Adam Leitner, and I always feel so bad for Adam that, that he never, um, Never joined the church, and I and because you know his wife was married to Joseph Smith and to Brigham Young, and it was a very very awkward place to be in. So um, anyway, the uh, I'm very interested in church history and, and Amos Lyman and other people that uh, that live around the hometowns where I grew up. Uh, so he's this is a movement the Godbeites was kind of a, a kind of like a sunstone of its day. Uh, except for they were more into spiritualism, where they were trying to contact the dead through seances and stuff like that, and uh, they kicked uh, Godby and, and Amos Lyman out uh, out of the church, and he was uh, uh, he was kicked from the Quorum of the Twelve, and then later reinstated. Um, going forward in the the chronology, in 1872, the territorial legislature had their fourth convention to have another constitution so that they could turn around and, and become a state, and uh, that uh, also fails. Uh, two years later, the Poland Act is, uh repealed uh, certain state statutes um, so that the territorial marshal and the attorney general uh, become federal officials. And as them being federal officials, now they have the control, uh, or they're starting to put police in charge of things in the territory so they can stop the polygamy and persecute those. the laws that they they made earlier to break up polygamy um, and to stop polygamy because that was the the, the Republican Party's uh, convention uh, and the Republican Party's theme was to get rid of the twin relics of barbarism and the, the civil war is over and at this point in time they're harping on polygamy but now they're going to put some more teeth in it by making the federal marshals appointed by the federal government so that they can get the ones that will do something. Uh, so the next thing that happens, uh, that same year is George Reynolds, uh, who's a secretary for Brigham Young, and a, a, a polygamist had two wives. He volunteers to turn around and have a test case to go, uh, before to, to test the constitutionality of the anti-bigamy law of 1862 and say that it's not really, uh, constitutional. So a test case, um, basically is you volunteer, you volunteer all the information uh, you need it so they they don't have to turn around and gather it, and you kind of cooperate in kind of a mock trial, sort of. Other than the consequences are real, but it's a test case to say we're taking this to court and we're going to turn around and try and prove our case. And so you have a little bit a better chance of of a uh, when when the when the prosecuting attorney isn't bringing the case before the court, but you're turning around doing it as a test case. You have a little bit better chance of winning. Uh, but it it uh, turns out uh, that the uh, test case for Reynolds doesn't uh, go very well. Um, And it doesn't really get the the law overturned. So in 1877, and when I was going through uh, church history to kind of help me along the way, I would remember specific dates uh, um, that I would keep in my head. 1877 was Brigham Young died. So anytime you hear a date of something, I would keep track. 1852 is when then the church turned around and talked about polygamy in the open. 1847, uh, uh, Joseph Smith dies in, uh, oh, sorry, 44. Uh, 1847, they moved to Utah. 1877, Brigham Young dies. 1890, the First Manifesto, 1904. So if you have these landmark dates that you have cemented in your head, then when you hear about a date, you turn around and go, well, this is before Brigham Young died, after Brigham Young died, And so it makes it a little bit places, if you have at least five or six solid dates in your head, then you can turn around and help these dates mean a little bit more to you. Uh, uh, There's some other dates uh, that are probably not as significant. Uh, In uh, 1878, 1879, there was a constitutional uh, challenge to interpret the First Amendment of the Constitution, but that becomes much more important later. Uh, with the uh, some of the other acts that come later. So in 1888, uh, in January 26, Wilford Woodruff has uh, what he considers a revelation in the wilderness of the San Francisco Mountains in Arizona. So as much as the government is trying to turn around and clamp down on polygamy, the Mormon uh, hierarchy is turning around at the same time, uh, digging in their heels, that it's a very, very important thing. And let me just read to you, uh, this is from uh, Wilfred Woodruff's uh, journal, uh, and uh, it's quoted in uh, Waiting for World's End. Susan Staker wrote a really great book about Wilfred Woodruff, and and basically the the thesis of the entire book is that um, Wilfred Woodruff thought that uh, the world was going to end right away, really soon, and as did many um, apocalyptic uh, prophets, uh, but it kind of affected his worldview, and we'll see that a little bit more when it comes uh, to the um, uh, the manifesto. So in this revelation in Arizona, it, he the, the revelation reads, "Thus saith my Thus saith the Lord unto my servant Wilfred Woodruff, My purpose shall be fulfilled unto this nation, and no." power shall stay my hand and I say again unto you woe unto the nations or house or people who seek to hinder my people for obeying the patriarchal law of Abraham which leadeth to celestial glory which has been revealed unto my saints through the mouth of my servant Joseph Smith who, is, who shall doeth these things shall be damned saith the Lord of hosts, and shall be broken up and washed away. No power can stay my hand, and he emphasizes that over and over, thus saith my Lord uh, to my servants and apostles who dwell in the flesh, uh, fear not my enemies. So he's basically received this, uh, your enemies will not prevail over you. So he's had this revelation in 1880 that regardless of all this um, laws that turn around and are trying to stop polygamy, that the lord will will prevent um the government from stopping polygamy and so he feels very confident and moves forward and uh forward with that um so uh the next thing that happens that's a, is very and there's the Edmunds Act and then the Edmunds-Tucker Act and the Edmunds Act is not nearly as strong the Edmunds-Tucker Act has a lot more teeth in it in 1880, so this two years after, uh, Wilfred Ruder receives this revelation that, that move forward with polygamy, uh, they're not gonna have, be able to stop us, um, we've got God on our side. The Edmonds law is, uh, is put to, to strengthen the anti bigamy law of 1862. Um, it's a declared a felony, uh, with a penalty and conviction of not more than five years imprisonment and $500. Uh, and they define, uh, polygamous living, uh, which is termed unlawful cohabitation. So here they've kind of shifted away from trying to catch someone getting married or catch someone that will turn around and testify in court that you had an illegal marriage to just catching people living together. And that becomes uh, the unlawful cohabitation becomes things that the federal officials, the federal marshals uh, go on hunts. They, they, this is when the time of the the polygamy hunts uh, ramp up because now they have a law that they can turn around. Uh, they they can turn around and see someone that's living with one person, and they know that he's married to somebody else, and so they they can go after them and uh, put them in jail uh, and give them fine them. It also uh, changes some of their rights. They don't have the same civil rights to a trial, and so. Even even though you belong in the territory, they could turn around and and if you if someone accused you of living cohabitation, they only needed very very flimsy evidence that that, that was happening. And instead of going to trial and you preside, you you present your side of the information. Someone else present the other ones. They take. They took away the right of a civil trial because the trial courts were often the the juries were by Mormons because they're mostly Mormons living here, or a, a judge might be Mormon or might might be uh, leaning towards Mormonism. But it's the only time ever found in in federal legislation where a citizen uh, did uh, they removed the rights uh, the normal rights of a citizen for a trial if they committed imagine if you if you're involved in uh, some other crime. And with that specific crime and no other crime, uh you can't you can't have a trial and go to court and say I was innocent. They just convict you and charge you and go to jail and that's it. So the the Edmunds Law did have a lot more teeth and it was a lot uh stronger and harder for um for the Mormons to turn around and live the, the law of polygamy that they wanted to live.
0: Well, I'm wondering if this would be a good time to end so we can, because the next events that we're coming up to are going to be a lot. And I think we should devote an entire episode to what's going to start happening with the manifesto. Would you be willing to come back on? Sure. Um, yeah, because I think that this is a lot of information to digest and you've done such a good job. And I don't want to just like try to cram it all in just so we can fit it into one episode.
1: We've got to the point where the the things were building up slowly, 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 and then the Edsman, Edmunds Law is when things change a lot because the the sh- it's shifted away from trying to catch people getting married to catch people living together, and that makes it the the whole ball game has changed at that point in time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I would I would love to have you come back on, and so we can specifically focus on the basically these from eighteen eighty to I don't know nineteen. 19- nineteen o five like you said, really pack in those those years and talk about the really important things that fundamentally will change the church
1: correct and i I think it it really does uh, affect um, the the Mormon mindset of uh, of what's going on because when it people of uh, the different aspects of the church marriage is a uh, is an ordinance that uh, affects almost all the members of the church, and whether you're practicing the correct uh, marriage ordinance, uh, and at this point in time, that was celestial marriage, which was plural marriage, and that uh, even though you, you could be married for, for eternity, if you weren't married uh, in celestial marriage with multiple wives, you weren't going to get the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. And we can talk about some of the quotes about that and how, how this really affected emotionally people, that, that they were being hunted down and, and, uh, and that even people not involved in polygamy, were they were tried to get them to uh, testify and report against their uh, neighbors. And the children, even going forth, back and forth to school, were sometimes questioned by marshals uh, about um, about who their father was, who their mother was, and who their aunt that they lived with was. And that the that the even the young young children became very paranoid about talking about anything as as uh, normal as who is your mother and who is your father. And they they didn't talk to strangers about those kind of things. They were taught at a very young age not to talk to any strangers about. The, the home environment that they were growing up in.
0: Yeah, and I think all of that really fits into the contemporary culture that we have now. I feel like there's remnants of that. So let's have you come back on in a couple weeks and let's talk about this period. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to link on the site to your timeline and have encourage everyone to look through that. And then I'm going to give you some articles talking about what we've already talked about but this is going to prime you because it's critical to understand the stuff with the manifesto because it will change. And we're not quite there yet, but I'm going to bring Perry on in a couple of weeks to talk more about this. And um, for now, go ahead and read the timeline and study these acts. So Perry, thanks so much for coming on and being willing to share this work with us.
1: Okay. Sounds good. I think we're right really close to an hour at this point.
0: Yeah, it's right on as an hour. So thanks again, and we'll see you on in a couple weeks.
1: Sounds great. Thanks, Lindsay.